Hi, I'm Tom Yoder, and this is Fieldwork, Misadventures at the Edge of Science. When we think about science, we mostly think of lab coats and microscopes in sterile and controlled environments. But there's a whole bunch of science that gets done in much more dirty and dangerous places. Science that's done by biologists, archaeologists, geologists, and a lot of other kinds of ologists who do fieldwork where there are sometimes no roads, no shelter, and no backup. But many times, the best stories from the field aren't about the science at all, or the coolest discoveries, but about surviving the fieldwork conditions and mishaps that inevitably happen while attempting to gather data in strange or sketchy situations, sometimes in foreign countries. After listening to the adventures and misadventures of some of the people who make the Four Corners their home, visit MesaVerdeCountry.com to plan your next adventure in Mesa Verde Country. Shauna Diedrichs is a fourth-generation Coloradan, raised and shaped by the landscapes and history of the West. She works as an archaeologist and architectural conservator at Woods Canyon Archaeological Consultants in Cortez, Colorado. With an MA from Northern Arizona University and a broad background in research, site conservation, and public education, she aims to help people appreciate cultural landscapes and imagine the lived history of our collective past. My conversation with Shauna was recorded at Fenceline Cider in Mancus, Colorado, in the middle of a busy Thursday evening crowd. So apologies in advance for all the background chatter. But really, Shauna's story is so riveting, I doubt you'll even notice. Shauna, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. <laughs> and we're here at Fenceline Cider, and we're having the hot mold cider tonight. It's delicious. I always it's like to fabulous. mention what we're drinking. Yeah, yeah, it's spicy, warm. <laughs> yeah, it's good for a, uh, well, it's raining now, but could be snowing later. It could be snowing. Knock on wood. Yep. So... Uh, so you have a story to share. I do. And uh, I'm just going to let you take it from the beginning, wherever you'd like to start. Okay. Yeah. And feel free to jump in. I will. If I, get, I definitely will. Yeah. Off tracker. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some bizarre story starts popping out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, okay. So the weather is actually a perfect setting for this story because we're going to go all the way back to when I was a young lass in... Uh, <laughs> The winter of 2011, um, and I was in the middle, I had just taken a break over the holidays uh, because I was moving from one job to another. I was going to go from the park service and I was just going to start a job at Crow Canyon, but I had, I had begged and cajoled and squeezed <laughs> in three months off so that I could basically take a sabbatical and go work on a project in Egypt. And I was so psyched. It's basically the New York University and University of Pennsylvania expedition to Abydos. Um, How did you get hooked up with that? Well, yeah, and that's the funny thing is uh, that expedition's been going on for, gosh, well, since at least the 1950s. Oh, wow. Um, And it's an annual, it's basically an annual uh, event. But the project director, Matthew Adams, out of... uh, Um, New York University Fine Arts Department. He is an absolute fan of Southwestern archaeologists because one, we deal with preserved sites, so... um, Like architecture and things like that. Yeah, architecture, wood, um, perishable materials, and we deal with standing buildings. So we actually have a handle on standing architecture, which a lot of archaeologists 
and a lot of places in the world don't deal with that yeah. as much. So I was, you know, one in a line of probably, you know, 30 or 40 Southwest archaeologists that had been conscripted to join the project at some point or another. Um, and actually, Kay Barnett had already been working on the project for a couple years, and Joanne Young had gone the year before me. Uh, I was going to get to go this year. It was awesome. So excited. So actually, uh, Jason Chipka, my husband, and Kay Barnett and myself, we headed over um, to Egypt about 10 days early to go touring around, go see the sites. And before we left, you know, you're always keeping your eye on on what's going on, uh, you know, uh, where you're headed. And we had already heard rumblings about uh, major protests in Tunisia. Um, but Egypt is Egypt and uh, everything was a go. Pretty steady. Yeah, pretty steady. Relatively steady in yeah. the Middle East anyway. Egypt has been, you know, a, um, a pilgrimage for tourism for 5,000 years. So, <laughs> you know, we were not the first. This was not like out of the box. So we flew over there and we we did the the usual tourist stuff. We, you know, we visited Cairo and we went to the pyramids and we... Uh, um, went to Luxor. We took a, a, a tour down the Nile. So we, yeah, we Neat. did a couple days That's on the cool. Nile. It was very Nilotic. It was awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, and just uh, and all the way down to the Sudan border, basically. So we saw a good chunk of Egypt. Um, loved it, and then we shipped Jason off. It was like <laughs> he decided to go to um, over to the Red Sea, um, cruise around. Um, because he wasn't doing the archaeology part uh -uh. with you guys. Okay. Yeah, so he came touring, and then he was going to travel for a bit by himself and then head home. Um, so we got dropped off in Luxor, and uh, uh, we went to join the project. So Abydos itself is in Upper Egypt, uh, and it is one of the most astounding sites, I think, on the planet. Like, um, you know, I, I, it's embarrassing to say that I had never heard of it before... Um, other people I knew started working on the project, but it's basically uh, the burial grounds for pre-dynastic kings of Egypt and the very first pharaoh. Wow. So by the second pharaoh, they had moved it all the way up to uh, Saqqara, north of Cairo, but prior to that, like uh, the beginnings of civilization in Egypt are all centered in Abydos. Do you know, like, off the top of your head, what years that would be? Like, where, what kind of time range you're talking about? Yeah, so at least 3000 BC is, wow. is when the kings were active. Um, uh, and before that, you've got even early agricultural society, so stuff that's going on, you know, 5,000 B.C. And they are—they actually, in, in Abydos, they're, um, they're competing for the earliest written inscriptions that you can find in the world. With Mesopotamia, cool. they keep taking the cake with the date, but wow. yeah, so early, early writing— early uh, status burials, uh, you know, it's basically the, the wadi that's behind uh, this whole cemetery area is the mythological entryway into the underworld for Egyptian society. What's a wadi? So a wadi is basically a, a large wash. We would call it a wash or a canyon. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you get to Avidos, 
It's this seven mile by seven mile uh, protected area. Uh, there's a town right next to it that is all built up and, and the Nile's right there. It's all lush with uh, agriculture and you know, there's donkeys everywhere. And <laughs> it, it, it's really, uh, yeah, very rural, uh, pristine Egypt. And then you've got like this desert and then above that is, is just expanse of uh, the Sahara up on the bluff above it. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Um, yeah, and then so our project that year uh, when we showed up was an excavation of a portion of the monumental structure. So before there was pyramids, there was something called uh, shunas. So they're basically the pre-pyramid monument. Uh, in Egypt. So they're giant square open structures. They're basically like, they look like an NFL football field if it was Whoa. made out of mud brick. Wow. Yeah. Are they like, that big? Yeah, they're that big. Wow. They're th- that, and like uh, six meter thick walls, five stories tall, all mud brick. Yeah. <laughs> and then these awesome. like very intricate entryways, um, like formal entryways for uh, the elite to enter into this place, and then they'd have huge rituals, processions, whatever on the on the inside. Hmm. Uh, but basically, those shunas represent that entire um, the k- king's reign. So everything about him and those shunas would get torn down when when uh, when the king died. So really, there's only one shuna that's still standing. And wow. that's the Shuna El Zabib. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. that's the one you were working and in. And that's the one we were working on. That's amazing. And like outside this one, they found uh, 14 buried full Nile ships uh, oh outside God. of the structure. Rhinoceroses have been buried there. <laughs> Elephants, donkeys. Wow. Like it's, it's like this, it's, <laughs> it's mind blowing yeah. archaeology. Like you can't, just can't, you can't make this stuff up. Um, <laughs> What was it like excavating there? Because you were actually excavating right, there, right? Right, right. Yeah, it, uh, it completely different than anything I had ever experienced. Uh, we showed up, you know, you stay in an expedition house. So there's this domed white structure in the middle of the desert. And that is both our laboratories, our housing, where we eat. Uh, but there was 40 other people from all over the world that were there. Japan, Hungary, uh, um, uh, Britain, you know, a lot of a uh, lot of U.S. students. Um, so, uh, conservators and excavators, uh, people that could, you know, uh, read early Egyptian scripts. Um, but we we were a very small fraction of the workforce because uh, then you go out to the job site and you will have anywhere from 100 to 200 um, local Egyptians that are working on the project on any given day. So uh, that can be, they're all men, and so it's um, men and boys basically that show up um, and they get picked that day uh, to work. But then there, it's it's very structured too. There's, there's a group of guys that are I, I would call them the archaeologists that we work with, uh, but they're called Goofties, and that's because there was a town of Gooft uh, that's nearby, and, you know, in the 1860s through the 1890s, uh, British 
archaeologists came to that part of Egypt were excavating and they taught this whole craft of archaeology to this, uh, you know, a bunch of, um, a group of men in goofed. This has been passed it's on. It's like a generation, yeah. generational thing that's yeah. been going on. This is, these are wow. craftsmen. This is what they've been, that's what they've done for generations and generations. So these guys run excavation crews, and then there's um, there's a head uh, Egyptian archaeologist basically called the Rias, and he handles, you know, he handles all the personnel. He handles the scale of what you're doing. He handles all, yeah, um, uh, the movement of all the material around a job site, uh, and he's basically the Egyptian counterpoint to um, our project director, mm -hmm. which was Matthew Adams. Okay. Um, yeah. So you get out there and you have to get up at five in the morning because of the heat, even in the middle of winter. I so was going to say, so is this January? February, what time it was, of year is so this? So we, we started in, yeah, I think the second week of, or third week of January. Okay. Um, and, it, you know, at 4.30 in the morning, you get the, you get the yell and uh, it, it's it someone screams cart and that means at the top of their lungs and that means that the 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 donkey wagons are there to pick up all of your gear for the day so you go you run you load them up with all the survey equipment all your backpacks everything and then you're able to go grab a little bit of food and by five o'clock first light you are you are hiking out you know 15 minutes up to the shuna and you're passing like tombs right and left as you go so yeah just giant uh excavations you know there's a mummified uh chunk of a dog over there and there's a <laughs> you know like it's pieces wow. of plaster on the ground over there and you're walking towards this massive uh adobe structure and then you're greeted you literally do a formal greeting with all of the um goofies and the rias uh, and then you grab your work crews and you start. But it is, um, yeah, the scale of it, it's just a concophony of people yelling commands and activity Sounds like a pretty well-oiled machine, though. Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, they've been doing it a while. Yeah, they've been doing it a long time. <laughs> yeah, these guys are professionals for yeah. sure. So what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, we were we were the odd duck crew, you know. We're the, um, they actually <laughs> called us the Four Corners because there was there was four of us. <laughs> I love it. Four of us, and we worked with almost no one but ourselves. So, you know, behind an excavation, we would go in and we would map like um, all of the artifacts that were in in one of the gateways, like uh, that were exposed. And these, the crazy part is, is it was just. Uh, carpeted with broken beer jars like oh, 5,000 wow. year old beer jars um, uh, <laughs> I guess the NFL stadium kind of uh, analogy holds true there yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah yeah and there's this whole theme we talked about that that you know beer makes kings it really does so in fact in those early dynasties the royalty controlled beer making so yeah. there was a huge brewery right outside of the shuna you didn't get beer unless you came to pay your tribute or work for the king yeah huh. which is kind of crazy yeah. uh so then we would we would map that and we would do architectural drawings of these like really intricate uh doorways and all the plaster work uh so it was it was pretty painstaking and we came out with sort of pencil and pen drawings of these 
gateways at, at the end of the day. So were there multiple gateways into this mm -hmm. structure like yeah. from all like different directions? There's really only four of them, so into each of the major walls. But because those walls are so thick, you can like, it's, oh. it's basically a little maze to get into them. And then there'd be rooms just right on the interior. The one we were working on was supposedly the entryway for the king himself and, and the elite royal party. So that it was maybe even a preparation room uh, for them before they entered into an assembly or something so cool. like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, you know, we're a bunch of uh, women running around with tape measures and like... <laughs> Yeah, they really, like, local workforce had no idea what to do with us. Uh, they were obligated, so there was there would be a, a young guy that would run around, and his entire job was to serve everybody tea, shy. So he would, he only had one, uh, he would be, someone be making tea all the time, but he would have a giant pot that he would walk around with, and he just had two small, like, shot glasses. So he pours your tea, he hands it to you, you're supposed to down it, you hand the glass back, and it goes to the next person. Now remember, there's like 200 you're people on this jog site. Yeah, we were. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it's, neat. So the chai keeps you going, though. The chai right? keeps you going. I know, and you look forward to it. And that yeah. poor guy's got to walk all the way over to your wow. little party to give you tea. But yeah, you look forward to That's it every so cool. day. Yeah. Interesting. And then at lunchtime, there was like a. You know, they bring lunch out on a donkey called Mishmish uh, Apricot. <laughs> and she would, uh, yeah, we'd huddle up in this little um, uh, grass hut, you know, pass around lunch. Yeah. So they were feeding you too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was all like local cuisine and stuff oh, like that? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I know other people were like, oh, it was too heavy or it was too rich but yeah and they had pastries they had like every kind of dip you could think of i was in hog heaven uh but the thing is they they keep you fed and they um and then you know we would work some people would work up to about 11 o'clock at night wow. so you'd get back to the lab and you'd process everything you do all your notes you do all your drawings so it was just this constant um there was you're only there for a short time so you cram it you cram it all in Wow. Yeah. So the season, the actual like season that you're there is just a few weeks long? Uh, usually, like that one was was supposed to be three months long. Um, within the first two weeks, we started hearing rumbling that, oh, yeah, there's there's a actually in the first week that there was huge protests going on in Cairo. Um, we had actually Jason Kay and I had 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 traveled around Cairo and there was definitely some protests going on around the university but we really hadn't thought much about it what did you see we saw like roadblocks um, in certain places so that it would stop vehicles so stop people getting close like to Tahrir Square or to the university we saw um, a lot of people um, young people on the streets uh, you, you would see people with signs every once in a while, but I never saw like a major mass of uh, protesters mm. until I started seeing it on the news that first week. How were you getting news there? Was it, was it, did you have internet or was there TV for you or Yeah, no, we had really, mouth? really poor internet. So we'd get <laughs> things sporadically. Um, and I was actually totally worried about Jason because he was traveling by himself yeah. um, uh, in the Sinai 
Uh, and, you know, by the time I finally connected with him, I was like, you need, you need to leave. You got to get out of here. Um, and he got to Cairo and just barely got out on his flight before they closed the airport. Um, wow. Yeah. So it, w- it was all of a sudden things were starting to shut down. But you were still there. We were still there. And the whole, you know, our director was like, no, we're going to we're going to hold on. We're just going to weather this. We are far from the city. Uh, but as soon as um, President Mubarak fled the country, um, New York University said, you know, <laughs> liability wise. Folks back home had other ideas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's time to pack it up. Wow. Um, yeah. So you had only been there for how long? Uh, I think we were there probably two weeks when we got noticed that that we were going to end the season early and be evacuated. Wow. Yeah. And so that, Tom, is where my story <laughs> starts. <laughs> wow. That's quite the setup, I got to tell you. <laughs> Amazing setup. <laughs> All right, lay it on me. What happened next? Yeah, well, it's a story of uh, adventure and woe on a very personal level, but it's unfolding on a global scale. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, I felt like it was fairly, it felt very tragic when, um, when we called off the season. You know, one, all of those people that work on the project instantly that was their that was their season of work like all you you are pulling the plug maybe on their income for the year um and then you know the the house staff was panicking we also were getting a lot of directive from the egyptian government so every time there's an excavation they have um people from the egyptian supreme council that come down they look at everything you've collected especially if there's any gold if there's any major items, those are taken right back to a museum. Uh, but I've there was, heard there's a lot of oversight. There's in a Egypt, ton of a oversight. very long established yeah. tradition of that. Yeah. yeah, but it it turned. It felt like there was. It was a panic, uh, and we thought we weren't. We were working hard before. All of a sudden, um, there was almost no sleeping. I would say that everybody started getting about three hours. Were of you sleep still a night. trying to do field work during all of this? Or? Well, we had opened up all, you know, massive excavation units already. Um, uh, we had all of this material that was perishable that had to be conserved before it could even be packed away. We had human remains that were like uh, had been brought in that you had to deal with. So it was, uh, yeah. And then everything had to be repacked. Um, yeah, you put everything away for the entire year, so into these storage facilities. And then there was Egyptian Supreme Council oversight on like every step of the way. And then, uh, of course, the panic of how to how to even get us out of there. Um, and oh, you know, and we had people from all over the all over the world. So, yeah. you know, there was I know one girl from uh, she was an illustrator and she was from Hungary. Um, she couldn't fly with the rest of us that were from. Uh, the rest of Europe or, or the U.S. and they were they were going to send her to Bahrain, I think. Like there was so people were getting shipped. Um, yeah, there was a woman from Japan. It was like I might have to go to Russia for a while. So it was it was trying to get everybody out of Egypt, but where to was a whole different question. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of there was just a lot of. 
chaos, a lot of frenzy. I mean, um, everybody was pulling it together and just trying to. Because you were just shutting it all down at we this were just point. Shutting just it all it, down. Like you would have done at the yeah. end of the season. Yeah, you're exactly. Doing it all. Three months later, all yeah. of a sudden we. And what would have taken is probably a week at the end of the season. All of a sudden we're having to compress it into a couple days. Uh, so we get the word. We f- we wait on pins and needles, all bags packed for about three days, and we finally get. Um, we're we're given the call at about three in the morning one night, and said, "Okay, there's a a bus that's coming to pick you up, a Greyhound bus." Uh, it showed up about an hour later, and what they had decided to do so they new york university hired a dutch extraction company to come get us <laughs> oh and this is what God. they do this, this is, is like all they CIA do cia level stuff like you know there's a terrible situation going on any somewhere in the world yeah. all the time this is all this company does they have planes they have um funds they have you know connections they work with handlers um so they had they had gotten a greyhound bus uh, it was driving across the desert because there were so many roadblocks on all of the highways and the roads, and people were being, it, there was no law, so the police had even folded at this point. Whoa. So um, there was roadblocks and people were being uh, ripped off right and left, or you know there was people being held for hostage. All sorts of terrible things were happening. So they decided that their best way to get to us was around everything so they had been they driving four wheeled out on the they desert four wheeled <laughs> so we all get in 40 of us with all of our gear and it was this heart-wrenching moment when we had to leave uh leave the house because you know the house staff and the rest of the staff th- that had come to say goodbye are just crying we're leaving oh, them in a country yeah. that the government is completely collapsed, there's no law and order. There's looting already beginning. Um, the museum had already been stormed in Cairo, so we are leaving in them in this totally precarious situation while we get extracted by some Dutch company. It felt, it just felt absolutely awful. It was a terrible moment, but we pull away. 40 of us on this Greyhound bus, all of our gear, we've weighted this thing down, and we're, now we're trying to drive back across the Sahara Desert. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the first, I would say the first seven hours involved us getting out and digging, digging out the Greyhound bus, it pushing stuck. it over and over and over again, oh, you know, man. as we were trying to, to get down, yeah, wow. to get past small towns and get on a highway that we thought that we could god the image of that is just insane (laughs) it is (laughs) it is oh wow yeah so where were you going to so uh, the plan was is that we were going to go to luxor and that they would get a plane to luxor but you know the luxor airport kept opening and closing opening and closing and uh wouldn't let people land for a while um but that was, we were aiming for Luxor. So we get to the outskirts of Luxor and all of a sudden our, our bus pulls over and there's this heated argument bet- between our director and uh, the bus driver and some other people, all in Arabic. All this um, kerfuffle, you know, we're probably there for 40 minutes while this argument's going on. Finally, um, Matthew Adams starts walking the aisles and he's like, uh, bus driver hasn't been paid. 
he's not taking us to the Luxor airport unless we come up with enough funds. So literally opening wallets, handing money over. Passing the hat around? Passing the the hat around to pay the bus driver so that we can even get extracted. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy gets paid. He drives us to the Luxor airport, which is closed, and dumps us off on the sidewalk in front of it. Um, we none of us have eaten. What's in, the airport like in Luxor? Uh, it's it's uh, it's actually a great little airport because that you know Luxor is the tourist hub of Egypt. So it's a a sweet little modern airport, one terminal, but um, but they won't let us in the door because the airport's closed mm-hmm. and we don't formally have a flight on the way either. So uh, again, forty of us piled on the front steps like literally on the front steps outside the front door um and you haven't eaten and we haven't eaten and they decide that they will let us in to the bathrooms if we go through a full security check now that's a very different thing in egypt than it is (laughs) here uh you get a full physical pat down uh, every time, so every time someone had to go to the bathroom, nothing in your pockets, full physical pat down, had to have your passport to get in and out, um, and and finally, so we we just are hanging out. We literally look like refugees at this point. I had caught a cold, uh, probably I don't know day two into waiting, and I was like, so I'm in, I'm actually in like a fever days at this point I'm like like half out of my mind someone finds a soccer ball we're playing that in the parking lot for a long time but there's like you know there's all these people evacuating from Egypt that are coming you know showing up at the Luxor airport you you have like you know sunburned Germans you know like with all their baggage and their hair sticking up trying to get some stuff yeah trying to get out of the country you know you just get like tourist bus of people and you know so the airport will open you know maybe for one domestic flight and a whole bunch of people will get on it but we don't have a flight so they're not letting us in the door so we spent 11 hours I think out in front of the airport no food there no food no food we finally they we finally get a booked flight that danish company is on the way with a chartered flight and at that we get we get into the airport and somehow somewhere again i'm in a fever day so i have no (laughs) idea how this happened but somebody shows up with a bunch of kentucky fried chicken There was a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Luxor. Are you sure about that? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. Wow. Okay. But that's all I remember. I just remember being so ravenous. And like, yeah. Eating that Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, And then... uh, we hear that it's time to move, you know, up towards a gate. So we all move all of our stuff up there. Um, and by this point, it's like 11, 1130 at night. Um, again, just we're all completely fried. And when it lands, we get the word that they want to keep the, this Danish company wants the airplane to be on the ground for as short a period as possible. They're like, we want wheels on the ground for less than, you know, 10 minutes. Like, we want you guys running 
so uh, to get onto this plane. So that's exactly what we did. It was like go time. They they opened up the doors. We ran across uh, the tarmac. Um, uh, How far? Oh, geez, it was probably. I don't know. It it probably took five or six minutes uh, to get. Um, yeah, yeah all the far. way, yeah, yeah, out to the plane. We're carrying all of our gear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Again, the image is just like that's wild. Right? Yeah, it is. It's crazy. We we climb on board. They're getting us seated as fast as possible, just cramming us in. We have all of our stuff in our laps, and then I mean, I I tell you, it was it was like we hadn't even no one was even seated before that plane was like up and and off the ground. They just did not want to get. Uh, grounded in yeah. in Egypt oh, at yeah. that point, yeah. um, and, and as soon as you could feel it, as soon as that plane took off, like the entire plane <laughs> eruption in like applause, and then the wow. yeah the Danish stewardesses are handing out chocolates right and left. <laughs> Everybody's like ecstatic. Yeah, it's just the com- relief. Yes, the absolute relief. Uh, yeah, it was quite the moment. Amazing. Yeah. God. So yeah. where'd you land? So the plan was we were gonna we were gonna land in Greece, and then everybody would start getting shipped off to wherever. in all sorts of di- different uh-huh. directions. So here's my tale of woe. This is when <laughs> it starts. Is about halfway through that flight, which was only you know maybe two two and a half hours long. I start feeling my pockets, and I'm like, "Where's my passport?" You know, no. I had yeah. Where's my passport? I had it. I had it <laughs> oh, in my no. pocket. So we had to like we had to show it as we were running out the door from security and then we had to run across the tarmac and then get on the plane couldn't find it couldn't find it i started tearing everything apart by the time we land i just um that's what i had to do is i had to call over i was the last person obviously on that plane and i said uh yeah i i don't know what i'm gonna do i don't have a passport on me um i got i got (laughs) off that plane and i you know our matthew adams was our director was standing out there and i said uh matt i'm pretty sure it's on the tarmac yeah in luxor it it bumped out somehow some way on that run yep yep on that run yep shoved it into a pocket bag i know I know. So now and, it's and U.S. So, Embassy time? So what when I walked now? in the door, everyone else was on the other side of customs. The entire, our, uh, our, yeah, our and you're our like on the entire other side project waving. crew. <laughs> and I just had to tell Matthew, and all he could say was, I, am, I will get a hold of the embassy in Greece as soon as I can. Hang tight. And then everybody so you're just was. in the airport in Greece. Yeah, and I couldn't get I couldn't get even into the door really. Yeah. I was I was in uh, I was in through the first door, but I couldn't even get in customs. So Did you have any ID at all? Did you have like your driver's license on you? Or oh any, yeah, I had, had a copy. Kind of I had a copy of my passport. Oh, okay. I had photos of my passport. I had my oh, driver's good, license. Good. I had yeah. Okay. I had and that definitely I'll never travel without that yeah, for sure. Smart. But um, I was these. Uh, Greek security officers just treated me like I was I was a criminal definitely trying to like get a into refugee. yeah trying to get into the country wow. and I had a guy like give me the like I'm looking at you symbol watching me all I had was like three seats to sit on one bathroom again no food Tom oh. no food <laughs> 
<laughs> so you've had Kentucky Fried Chicken and chocolate at this point. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> One like square day. of chocolate. I, uh, I was, so you get in the Greek airport, you get six minutes of free Wi-Fi for a call at that time. So I was a, I made one call and it was to Jason and I got him, um, I got him on the phone and I was able to spit out, we're being evacuated. I'm in the Greek airport. I've lost my passport. Oh, I don't know man. when I'm coming home. <laughs> <laughs> and then the line went dead. And then the line went dead. And I was dead in the water. He couldn't call the embassy. Um, I couldn't get to an actual phone on the other side of security. Uh, you know, like a regular phone to call anybody. They wouldn't let me use their phone. So I sat behind that, that custom security for another, probably another seven hours. Was there anybody else with you back there? No. Like no, were- well, there was, there was, you know, people would, flights would come in and people would come, come through. And they would see you? Yeah, and they were like, I... I, and I truly look like a refugee at yeah. this point. Like I was in a, a fever sweat, you know, like I hadn't slept in days. I was starving and I was like, I was fairly desperate. Like I did approach some girl and, you know, some American teenager in the line, like, hey, hey man, can I use your phone? And she was like, no. <laughs> Get away from me, woman. No. And then, and then, you know, the Greek security guy like gives me uh-huh. the uh, "I'm like, watching stop, you" sign again. Stop trying to get it from somebody. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I so they even change shifts. These Greek security guys, they, you know, the night shift goes off, the daytime shift comes on. I try to explain to them again. You know, they're pretending they don't speak English, but you know, I hear them chatting in English every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Finally, he gives me, I get, I get this, one of the security guys waves me over, and the American ambassador to Greece is sitting in his office, and she is, she is livid. She, she is like, you know, I, I lined this up yesterday. Anyone coming out of Egypt or any of the Arab, um, Arab countries that are collapsing, if anyone had a problem, they were supposed to call me immediately. You know, this should never have happened to you. Uh, she was, yeah, she was giving him a piece of her mind. Yeah. But um, they had left me behind there for, you know, seven hours. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. good to be an American, I guess, though. I know, at that point, but right? just a tiny taste of what other yeah. people go through. Oh, man. Yep. Including, yeah. you know, Jason is a Canadian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's trying to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> The tiny taste. So, so I was illegally in Greece, and uh, but there was a process for getting me back onto American soil. And what it took is obviously I had a copy of my passport and all my other ID. I had to fill out an actual criminal report in Greece, and then I had to be like escorted. Like a confession? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I swear I lost my passport. And Jason is always joking that, there, you know, there's some Egyptian woman that's trying to get under, right. you know, Shana in Diedrichs. under the name, under Shauna Diedrichs. Yeah, this very German yeah, name. Right, yeah. right. Uh, but I had to have a security person with me. So there was a person designated to me. A Greek security person? Greek security person. And then the ambassador was with me. And then a woman, and then uh, somebody from Delta. Uh, so they were going to get me on a Delta flight. So all three of those people... 
um, had to walk me through this whole process, and it was, you know, uh, attesting to a criminal, yeah, uh, uh, filing a criminal. And at this uh, point, you're paperwork. just sitting in offices, filling out forms, yeah, and doing exactly. the whole thing. And then I was walked to my gate, but at the gate, I was escorted into a private room where I got to have, um, yeah, I had to take my clothes off and have a, f- yeah, what? <laughs> a full body From search. From the Greek? Yes. Oh, Greek security. Man. It was a different Greek uh, security officer. Wow. Yeah. And you're like, whatever at this point. Just right. Like, I know. And I feel bad for them because <laughs> like I was, you were not. I was a little ripe at that point. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> but no, they, they finally get me onto the plane and they had actually, um, my project director, bless his soul, he got me into first class. So he nice. put me on a first class seat uh, on a plane to New York City, um, and I got on that plane, and I was I was a wreck. I was a serious wreck, uh, and I laid down, and I think I passed out. Like oh, immediately, sure. I passed yeah. out. But all I remember from that entire flight is I, uh, the smell of food would wake me up, and I would like eat everything that they put in front of me, and then I would just go unconscious again. And there was a guy in a you know, a full business suit next to me that was just, I, he's probably mortified. I don't think I ever looked him in the eye. <laughs> Who is this woman in first class? Like a, this refugee woman. Right, exactly. She ranks somehow getting right. here. That is crazy. Yeah, yeah. She's a, you know, maybe she's in witness protection or something. But I, I flew to, uh, yeah. Uh, into New York, and I had this horrible feeling, like towards the end, like man, I've got to, I've got to land. I've got to go through security and customs. Yeah, I have to get into side. the U.S. Right. And I just had this horrible feeling, like, am I going to end up in a holding cell again? Am I going to, oh. you know, what no is? No wonder what you're is, like eating as much as you can. You yeah. Like, don't know when you're going to be right. Out. Right. Um, I landed and um, the Delta people directed me straight to the customs office. So before I even went through any kind of security, I walked in there and I, I said, uh, you know, my name's Shauna Diedrichs. I, I lost my passport in Egypt. And they're like, we know, honey. Welcome home. We know about you. <laughs> yeah. oh, and I, nice. I think I, I started crying. Like I started I crying in the customs office oh. and they were like, we, we've got you. We're going to take oh, care of you. Awesome. We're going to get you home. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So that I made it. Wild. I made it all the way home a, a day later, um, and I was I was trashed for about a week. I was just. It, it was so. Um, it just. It was an experience that completely. Uh, I don't know. Blew my world wide open. Um, it, it's just so beyond our our everyday experience. Um, you know, living in the U.S. Totally. That we just can't even comprehend. And just being worried sick about everybody that was left behind, too. And watching that all unfold uh, was yeah. really hard. But we went back the next year. That yeah, was, I was just about to ask you. So you went back. Yeah. And you were, they were got determined. your full season? We did a full three months. Uh, the site had been 
extremely looted. Over 300 <gasps> mechanical, wow. like, giant pits. People were, like, bringing in backhoes and stuff? Yeah, backhoes and stuff. Wow. Um, the house staff actually stepped up their crazy. They took an old Jeep, and they, and they took a bunch of canvas and made a frame around it painted it and made it look like a tank and they would go drive around out there to deter looters yeah but they had they were like, like unarmed yeah they were like wow. <laughs> trying That's to protect so cool. the site yeah wow yeah great story amazing people that is amazing yeah man what an adventure <laughs> and i'm so glad you got to go back yeah i am too i am too and i wish i could you know if i had to do again i'd probably be an egyptologist but uh, yeah, it was, and it was our entire crew. Like I think everyone from that first expedition committed and came back the next year, yeah. just uh, just to like put ourselves back in that situation to and, kind of and finish it. Yeah, to finish sense. it yeah. and sort of follow through on that commitment. Um, yeah, which was it was. Uh, we're a tight group of people that had a very bizarre experience yeah. together. Yeah. God. So cool. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, you're welcome, Tom. <laughs> <It's> very cool. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Fieldwork, Misadventures at the Edge of Science. And thanks to Shauna for sharing her epic, absolutely epic tale of escaping from Egypt at the start of what would later be known as the Arab Spring in the Middle East in early 2011. I also want to thank Fenceline Cider for letting me set up my mics and record my conversation with Shauna on a pretty busy evening. If you're a biologist, archaeologist, geologist, or any other kind of ologist field scientist living in the Four Corners area and have a fieldwork misadventure to share for this podcast, please contact me by emailing tom at ksjd.org. I'd really like to hear from you. Fieldwork is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. Find out more about KSJD on our website at ksjd.org. And this podcast is supported by Mesa Verde Country and the Colorado Tourism Office through its Restart Destinations program. If you want to learn more about the archaeology of the Four Corners, don't miss another podcast from KSJD called Mesa Verde Voices. It does an excellent job of discussing the prehistory of the area through the lens of contemporary perspectives of the indigenous people whose ancestors lived that history. You can find the Mesa Verde Voices podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The theme music for Fieldwork is from Genuine Cowhide. You can listen to their amazing tunes right on Spotify. I'm Tom Yoder, reminding you that passports are great, but have you ever had Kentucky Fried Chicken while fleeing a country that's spiraling into anarchy? Mmm, delicious. Delicious.